Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Welcome, folks. This is Steve King. I'm the uh, Managing Director at uh, Cyber Theory, and uh, our episode today is going to uh, talk about uh, where we stand in the international cybersecurity geopolitical playing field. And we're gonna we're fortunate enough to host a couple of the industry's best and brightest to discuss that. Richard Bird, the Chief Product Officer at Sexata and former Chief Customer Information Officer at Ping, has been a CIO and CISO for two of the world's biggest banks and a founding board member of the Identity Defined Security Alliance, and is a widely recognized expert in identity management, a senior fellow at the Cyber Theory Institute. And joining Richard and I today is Tom Kellerman, the Senior Vice President of Cyber Strategy, Contrast Security, and the former head of Cybersecurity Strategy for VMware and Chief Security Officer for Carbon Black. Tom served on the Cyber Investigations Advisory Board for the United States Secret Service and was appointed the Wilson Center Global Fellow for Cyber Policy. So Richard's running a couple of minutes late today, So, but welcome, Tom, and thanks for joining us today. We are uh, arguably in our first cyber war. The daily cybersecurity events reports that they're rarely positive. We continue to do the same things that haven't worked in the past. We see exord after exord from the White House with lots of promotion from the promotion from the CISA team, but without any mandate power. Many of the seasoned smart guys who've been in this space for a while have been have started to grumble and. We're hearing from guys like the vice chairman of the JCS, John Hyten, who decided to scrap (laughs) joint uh, warfighting concepts that had guided the U.S. military operations for decades because we we were, quote, getting our asses handed to us by the Chinese red teams. That took me aback, actually. And uh, Michael Bayer, a longtime Pentagon advisor who led a recent review of naval cybersecurity, said the cyber war is aimed at a whole of society and the state, and we are losing that war. Nick Shalon, who uh, is a polarizing personality, albeit, was also the first chief software officer for the U.S. Air Force and Space Force and a former special advisor for cloud security and DevSecOps of the Department of Defense recently resigned his post out of frustration that moving cybersecurity initiatives through the bureaucracy has become impossible. So you got respected leaders like retired General Keith Alexander and, you know, who had now, you know, scathing comments about our inability to compete in the battlefield with either the Russians or the Chinese Communist Party and et cetera, et cetera. Our book about the which are my my publishers insist upon calling losing the cyber war is due to be published in October. And our thesis is that there are five separate battlefields on which this war is being fought. Information, which we call intelligence, leadership, economics, technology, and education. And we're losing in each one. Today I'm hoping we can discuss each battlefield and what you two think we need to do to prevail and turn the race back. So Tom, why don't we start with you? Let's talk about education. Well, let's talk about education. And with that, let's talk about governance. 
from an education perspective, not only is there a lack of human capital in cybersecurity and a lack of desire, even for seasoned veterans to stay in any position for longer than three years, either because of burnout or because of corporate poaching, but you also have a tremendous, tremendous governance issue. I still don't understand how CISOs, if they exist in organizations, which hopefully they do, but not, not in all, obviously, why the position hasn't been mandated by law, nor why the position continues to report to the CIO. Why is the defensive coordinator reporting to the offensive coordinator? That's part of the problem here. In addition, educationally, <laughs> defense is dead. Uh, it's not effective in, in the world of digital transformation and modern applications and cloud computing, multi-cloud, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason why we're losing the war is not just because of a lack of proactive public policy or more offensive cyber operations per se um, by the NSA and others, uh, but it's also because of the nature in which the adversary exists within. We're dealing with a, with a cyber insurgency. Um, that spans the Western world, one where the adversary has been allowed to, because of the lack of leadership, both within corporations and at the government level, has been allowed to colonize wide swaths of our infrastructure and our supply chains as it relates to software and code. You made a, that's an interesting concept of, that you, going back to your comment about uh, why the CISO, the defensive coordinator reports to the offensive coordinator, what What's your recommendation for the right role and location and leverage for that position? CISOs should be C-level and they should report directly to the CEO and they should brief the board on a monthly basis. That happens in some proactive financial institutions. It happens in the defense industrial base. And outside of that, it rarely happens unless the company has been victimized by a massive cyber breach. But we also just need to appreciate one fundamental fact, which is so the term colonization that I use, you know, as we digitally transform, we're more exposed uh, to cyber attacks. But more importantly, the adversary is not just trying to break in and steal and or conduct ransom. The adversary wants to hijack that digital transformation and then use your digital transformation as an attack platform against your constituency, whether it's a government agency, a large company. That's what the Russians and Chinese are so good at doing. And so in order for us to even fight this war, we need to begin with a counterinsurgency within our infrastructures and within our supply chain. Hmm. And how do we do that? Well, a lot of ways, you know, I think I think we really need to begin with expanding threat hunting across that infrastructure, mandating reporting requirements for breaches, understanding that we need to defend from inside out uh, and believe in constructs like intrusion suppression, where you can detect, deceive, divert, contain and hunt an adversary unbeknownst to an adversary. And then much more needs to be done in the area of uh, supply chain and application security and, and being able to protect applications in runtime uh, because of the nature of you know, it's really been the last two years have been the years of zero days uh, that have expanded because of what you've described, because of that nexus between the intelligence services of Russia, China, North Korea, and cyber crime cartels, uh, where, where many of these cyber crime cartels act, act like proxies in the environment. Yeah. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, the Reagan years and how we, how we managed to get Russia to spend itself to death. So when we talk about economics in these separate battlefields, we're spending a fortune on this stuff, and it it seems like it never ends. It seems like no matter what we spend, it, it has no impact, zero to no impact. Steve, if, if I may interject here, 
we're spending what is the total addressable market of cybersecurity? What 130 billion, 150 billion, whatever that is. Now, what's the total addressable market? The economy of scale, the dark web, over a trillion. The majority of the proceeds of cybercrime get pumped back into rogue nation states that allow them not only to fuel the cyber war that is occurring, but also to directly offset economic sanctions that have been imposed by the West. So for them, this is a funding mechanism. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. We've just discussed two areas in which we have no leverage. How do you reverse that? So for the funding and the financing leverage, I think we need to modernize forfeiture laws and AML laws, anti-money laundering laws, so that greater seizures can be applied to virtual currencies and alternative payment systems that are complicit in allowing for money laundering associated with cybercrime and cyber spying. Also, greater offensive activity must be taken by Western law enforcement to shut down some of these nefarious payment systems and virtual currencies that are complicit in laundering the proceeds of cybercrime, child porn, and drug trafficking, period. Use that money to fund, almost like a super fund, to fund critical infrastructure protection in the West. Um, that's just from a financial lens. From a cybersecurity lens, again, instead of trying to build a castle around our infrastructure, thinking that 100% prevention is possible, it should look a lot more like a like a prison, like a supermax, where lateral movement is inhibited, where, where the person is being observed at all times, the person being the entity, right, or, or the, the data itself, or even the code. And, and we need to continuously test and evaluate the security of that environment and be able to apply control and security in real time within the infrastructure, uh, because they will obviously always have a footprint somewhere within, whether it's through a rat or whether it's through a zero day. Yeah. Hmm. Let's move on to uh, intelligence or information. You know, we we live in a world where our enemies and our adversaries always have more intel, always have more information about events and and uh, who's doing what to whom than we do, and attributable or otherwise. I guess it doesn't seem to me that there's an easy way to combat that, and and the less that we know about what's going on, the more open we are to attacks from, from without. What are your thoughts about the imbalance in the information uh, section there? Well, because we believe in freedom of the press and because we believe in the First Amendment, I don't think we're ever going to win that fight. However, I think more of the constructs that were applied during World War II and during the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis deception and disinformation should be applied against our adversaries. And even from a cybersecurity perspective, I think there's a future for deception technology and deception grids per se. Beyond that though, you know, their worst enemy obviously is transparency. So facilitating as in not us corporations, but the US government intelligence community and, and the DOD and the five eyes and NATO for that matter, should do a great job moving forward to, to break down kind of the, the iron, the cyber iron curtains around China and Russia to basically spread uh, truth uh, to those that are being victimized by those regimes. Yeah, it's not easy to do in this environment. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? The part of the problem is we're, we're dealing with adversaries who have an entirely different form of government. They can sort of do whatever they want. They don't need the they don't have a constitution. They have to satisfy every time they do something, and we do. So that that puts us at a substantial disadvantage in so many different ways. And you know, we the kinds of 
you know, mismal and information that and deception that we would have to conduct here are pretty nefarious, it seems to me. And there's always going to be, you know, the actionable crowds around whatever, whoever pisses whomsoever off, you know, complaining about it. So it makes for a very difficult, makes for a very difficult war. In terms of uh, technology itself, that, that's you know. a good that's a good point you're raising there, Steve. I mean, let, let's just discuss the elephant in the room. Why has there been such a reticence to have proactive public policy as it relates to cybersecurity and cyber defense for the United States? It's because of K Street. I'm from D.C. It's because of K Street, because K Street and the major lobbying arms of various corporations and the most powerful corporations believe in laissez-faire economics. And as a result of laissez-faire economics, the market has failed. And, and the market has failed here in such that it's created an, an entire shadow economy and dark web market that has an economy of scale of over a trillion dollars. So when are we going to get away from applying laissez-faire economic theory to cyber defense and cybersecurity, given that it's an economic and national security imperative? Yeah, when are we? And what's going to be the driver? I mean, we just described like four different mega problems here <laughs> you know moving i any one of those would be a big deal and would be helpful but uh all four is actually sort of sort of depressing to Oops. sorry for that i'd love to hear richard's thoughts how are you richard <laughs> so i'm doing great i am enjoying this conversation so oh. much <laughs> welcome uh, richard thanks for coming yeah, and I apologize for for the delay in joining, but oh my gosh, I, you know, so trivial and useless facts about Richard Byrd. Um, my my academic background is actually in political science with a focus on international relations theory, and you know, you've gone over so many different, just real. I mean, to use the use the old term, realpolitik, pragmatic, and truthful statements about the patterns of human behavior, organizations, nation states that is consistent throughout history. And I think it's super fascinating. One of the things that you brought up about the behavior of both organized crime elements, as well as nation states, it's not like we haven't seen these patterns before, right? It's not like we haven't seen the types of espionage, stealing of intellectual property, you know, the usurping of, you know, different channels of commerce to create cash flow, particularly in the organized crime sector. Yet we have no equivalent of the Elliott Ness days going on as it relates to attacking these problems from a law enforcement standpoint, from a policy standpoint. It's just a fascinating to me to see this massive loss of historical knowledge because, and Steve, you've heard me say this so many times, because for 40 years, we've ascribed this Harry Potter-esque mysticism to technology when technology is just simply a digital plow, right? Right. We've given it, you know, we've given all of these, you know, we something that I've gone off about recently, you know, the, the hacks that have been, you know, highly publicized over the last several weeks. Every PR company has come out, every PR organization, those companies have come out and said, we were the victim of a sophisticated hack. And you just minimally scratch on the surface, and it literally is the exact opposite of a sophisticated attack. It is basic hygiene. It is poor configuration. It is, you know, being crushed because of poor management of your identity controls, being crushed because of poor management of your threat and vulnerability controls. And yet we've gotten ourselves into this cycle of intellectual dishonesty 
in every place in America that touches cybersecurity in the corporate suite, in the government, in every aspect of our day to day, we are choosing to be willfully ignorant about the causes, the drivers. And what you said was just so fascinating to me. You know, now we have a situation where the bad actors are able to outspend the good actors by factors of 100 to 1, right? And when you look at the just basic economics of that, we're 100 to 1 behind right now. And what does it take to even begin to close that gap? Because even if we only get 50% better, we're still down 50 to 1. (laughs) Right. And we're also forgetting about the motivations of the bad actors and what they're willing to do. They're very Machiavellian, which we are not. And and to that point, you know, I'm very concerned about the future of of cloud jacking and supply chain attacks that render, you know, integrity attacks a manifestation. They're willing to, you know, not only use deception and disinformation, but imagine when they hack your infrastructure and they begin to manipulate the value of, of the data, the integrity of the data, the value of time through Kronos attacks, et cetera. It's happening. It's not widespread yet. But they could really cripple us in our economy that way, much, much worse than just stealing from us and, and being omniscient. They could become telepathic. <laughs> <laughs> I like That's that. Great. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, Techno- you know, from, the a te- other- from a technology point of view, look, we know we're way behind. We know the Chinese are way ahead in quantum. There will be a quantum player. It will be the Chinese all of those uh, medical record thefts and all of the PII thefts over the last several years, you know, that's all the for future uh, decoding of, of encryption. And so what does that future hold? And why are we underspending by like an order of magnitude on technology? Just a quick statement on this. One of the reasons why we're in this quagmire is because the leadership of the world presumed that encryption would save us from this day and has over relied on the utility of encryption without the comprehension of the flaws and weaknesses of encryption, even if it's robust, hardened encryption. If you hack the private entity, the, the, end, the end point that has the keys, um, you can ride that tunnel through. And so one of the things that must change is, is a greater attention to defending from within when it comes to standards versus this defense in depth posture that we've embraced for years that over relied on the efficiency and the adequateness of encryption. I don't think encryption has ever been the answer. I understand the import of encryption, but it's really, can you, can you compromise the entity or the code that maintains the keys? Yeah, sure. And you're right. That's always been the case. This sort of leads us ultimately to leadership, right? I mean, this, everything we've talked about here is goes to leadership in one manner, way, shape, or form, and uh, including uh, where's Elliot Ness when you need him. So, Tom, I mean, you know, you, I know you get five minutes in a hard stop here. So, uh, any closing thoughts about what you know? What the hell do we do? So, from a technological perspective, I'm really embracing the construct of of integrating network detection response and endpoint detection response and conducting much more robust threat hunting so that we can eradicate an adversary that's already exists within our infrastructure. Obviously, given given where I am now, I'm here for a reason because of the explosion of application API attacks. I really think continuous monitoring must go beyond production and operations into development. And that should should apply to software development, code development, et cetera, et cetera, because frankly, open source has a dark passenger. Beyond that, I think from a governance perspective, 
CISO positions should be mandated uh, by the SEC and every organization and that CISO should report to the CEO and board. From a public policy perspective, I think that we should give the NSA and law enforcement more leeway to go on the offensive to disrupt the forums, the alternative payment systems, and, and the cybercrime cartels writ large. Also, to, for, that, for them to use disinformation operations to poison the relationship between the cybercrime cartels and Russian intelligence services or Chinese intelligence services. And I can keep going and going, but we just have to keep our eye on the ball. And the ball is this adversary doesn't want to just steal from us. This adversary wants to hijack our digital transformation and use it to attack our constituencies. And God forbid the day the adversary chooses to do that and then use it to launch destructive integrity attacks. So we have to defend against that now, but I'd love to hear Richard's thoughts. It's hard to disagree with any single point that you made, Tom. I think that there's two pieces that I would grab a hold of in your wind up there. And that is, the first is, is that it, the condition of the world and its lack of, of action in addressing the crypto markets. We'll use Elliot Ness as, a, as an example again. You know, Elliot Ness said, hit them hard and hit them where it hurts. Well, where it hurts is in the ability to transfer and, and move money around through anonymous channels and allowing this crypto market to continue to develop and continue to evolve on the same uh, anonymous pathways that have caused the massive amounts of issues with political disinformation, with social media is just, again, just frankly irresponsible. And it needs to be addressed immediately. I would say when I kind of look at the future, I get a bit of a chuckle out out of quantum because I've always found that the bad guys are, with the exception of nation states, the bad guys are a relatively lazy group. They will use the path of least resistance. So if I have access to quantum resources and I need to crack encryption, but somebody just leaves a port open, I don't really need to worry about the next cool thing, right? And that kind of goes back to the reality that the the giant hole within cyber defenses today are just simple basics. You know, these hacks and breaches and exploits that are happening, very few of them are happening at, at some kind of Star Trek level. They're happening more at the Fred Flintstone level. So companies, and that goes back to your points about, about CISOs and mandating um, security as an imperative uh, within companies and organizations and agencies today. I, I do think technologically, there's an interesting development as it relates to decentralized architectures. And I do think that there will be a lot of development in that space, making it difficult for bad actors to get a complete picture, a complete profile, a complete inventory of anything by fragmenting. And I think that the speeds that are afforded to us, both internal to corporations as well as external to corporations relative to cloud technologies and networks, give us that opportunity. And so I think. It's not all doom and gloom, but I do think um, you know there's just going to be quite a bit more hard road to travel here before we start making substantial improvements. Well, we're at the top of the hour, and I know, uh, Tom, you've got to go. And so, Richard Bird, Tom Kellerman, thank you both for, for taking the time out today to help us with uh, your unique view of the topic and, and you know, the uh, situation that we're in here. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm afraid it feels like it's only going to get worse as time goes on, but we'll be able to get together again in a few months and talk about it some more, if you don't mind. Be awesome. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll uh, talk soon. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.